December 10th, 2003. Tomorrow, I shall cut school to go be photographed for teen people. My life is just so glamorous like that. I finally found out the subject of the shoot, prom makeup. Cause you know, it's never too early. I like how I've spent all my teen rag reading years making fun of prom hysteria, and then I have to go and perpetuate it. I am a sellout hack at age 16. Welcome to Teen People, the podcast where I interview people who were in Teen People magazine as young adults. I'm Anna Sober, and I'm a visual artist and librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. This episode features an interview with Frankie Thomas, an emerging author from New York. Frankie appeared in the March 2004 issue of Teen People in the magazine's Prom Survival Guide. Like a millennial Pygmalion, Frankie was plucked from the streets of New York into the glossy studios of Teen People magazine. Their photo appeared in an article called Marathon Makeup under the headline Smooch Proof Lips. Among other things, Teen People's makeup artists suggested using lip liner as lipstick, it'll last longer, or layering gloss over a lip stain. As you'll hear in this episode, this was uncharted territory for Frankie. Frankie grew up in Chelsea and went to the Friends Seminary, also known as the Quaker School. Founded in 1786, the school's former students include Kira Sedgwick, Vera Wang, Amanda Peet, and Lena Dunham. Frankie has an MFA in fiction from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and has written for the Paris Review, focusing on 90s pop culture, young adult literature, and queer aesthetics. Their writing career began with a teenage blog, You'll hear excerpts from this throughout this episode. Um, I read The Peace Garden, um, which describes life at a Quaker school in, Man in Manhattan, and your essay about the joys of learning Latin. And it seemed to me like you have had a childhood like something from a Wes Anderson film. Beautiful way of putting it. It's funny, I feel like I'm doing a promotional interview for a book that is not out yet, but I am currently shopping around a novel about my high school years at a Quaker school. I mean, it's a novel about a fictional character's high school years at a Quaker school. And uh, that is so funny. Yes, it really does try to capture that kind of enchanted Wes Anderson, kind of feral, urban, privileged teen vibe that I get at in both of the things you mentioned. Like sort of Franny and Zoe, but with millennials. Oh, that's very well put. Yes, there's, there's a lot of that to it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Frankie's issue of Teen People features Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey on the cover. Beaming and blonde, Jessica stands confidently in the center of the cover, wearing a tight white t-shirt with the caption, I heart Nick. The couple is surrounded by the requisite teen magazine copy. Quiz, Is He the One? Page 146. Simple Plans, New Gig, Missy Elliott's Crush, True Story, I stashed drugs for my boyfriend and got busted. 693 ways to have the best prom of your life, plus your perfect dress, $18 and up. A brooding inset photo of Ashton Kutcher sits in the top right corner, promising a feature on Star's prom pictures. Ah, the breezy days of the mid-2000s. Frankie spoke with me on September 12th, 2021.
In their column in the Paris Review, Frankie discussed a 1989 book called When Someone You Know Is Gay. In the essay, Frankie evoked the phenomenon of the magic eye pictures, those inscrutable, migraine-inducing posters plastered across every bedroom wall and sitcom storyline in the early 1990s. Reading When Someone You Know Is Gay in the school library, Frankie had a revelation. They later wrote, in 2000, it did not strike me as weird that a book about gay people should assume that all its readers were straight. I did what all queer kids learn to do very well. I read between the lines. As if looking at a magic eye picture, I diverged my eyes and squinted until I saw myself. Parroting the book's title, Frankie wrote, when someone you know is gay, when someone you know, you know. very much what my novel is about too. So this is just the subject I've steeped myself in for the last four years. I've written about this uh, in my essays too. It was just such an odd transitional time. I assume you're close to my age. So the, the historical moment during which we were children and teenagers was like, it seemed to be an unprecedentedly open time for gay people and gay rights. But looking back on it now from what, 20 years later, it seems really like really uh, early and closeted time in a lot of other ways. And I'm so interested in the contradictions there and how we were we were going along feeling like, like, wow, this is it. Like gay people are accepted now, but from 20 years on, we can look back and think, wow, that was actually a really difficult time. I find that fascinating. So I guess that's the, that's the contradiction that I have been trying to capture in everything I've ever written for the last few years. Do you think we live in a time today when we could say the same thing and 20 years from now, we'll look back and be like, wow, we had no idea. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure 20 years from now, we'll look back and it will seem even worse in many ways than the 90s and early 2000s. But uh, the cultural shifts have been so real and so strange. And uh, I don't know, it's just it's it's very compelling to me how we can think we're experiencing one thing and then look back on it and realize that we were experiencing a different thing. And we would love to go back and tell our younger selves like what we think was the reality of it. But in other ways, both realities are true. I don't know, I think about this a lot. And you don't want to succumb to the temptation of thinking, oh, well now in 2021, we are so smart and we know everything, unlike in 2001 when we were so stupid. Because I think in many ways we were smarter than we gave ourselves credit for in 2001. And in many ways we know less than we think we do now. And it's just a constant process of rewriting your own story and rewriting your knowledge of the world and trying to figure out what did you always know? And, oh God, what were the known unknowns to quote a horrible but relevant man? I'm curious about why you're interested in 90s um, culture, because you have this column for the Paris Review. What is it about that time that's so nostalgic for you? That's such an interesting question. And you know, if you'd asked me four years ago when I took up this beat, basically, I would not have had an interesting answer for you. I would have said that I was working in collaboration with my editor at the Paris Review, who at the time was the wonderful Naja Spiegelman. And she suggested a lot of these topics. And so we were, it was a sort of collaborative thing. That's what I would have told you four years ago. And like so many of the things we're talking about, it would have been true in its way, but also four years later, I can now see it in a lar larger context. What I've realized over the last four years of writing is I have spent the last four years like trying to transition, like working my way toward a transition and a gender crisis and now, <laughs> coming out the other side of that and uh, re-entering life as a trans person. And so I think when you transition later in life, especially when you, when you wait till you are 30 to start questioning your gender, you become very fixated on your childhood and your adolescence. And you become quite obsessed with, uh, with like just replaying certain stories and incidents in your head and wondering what might've been, what, like, how can this, how can this be looked at from a different angle? What's another thing this story could mean? And you start revisiting all your past obsessions and what meant a lot to you when you were growing up and trying to figure out like, what was I really getting out of that? What did that really mean to me? I mean, I think 
the question that a lot of late in life transitioners uh, dwell on is, was there any point? Was there like a moment when I could have changed the timeline? Was there a point when I could have figured it out sooner? Was there like, was there any window of time when I might have, you know, diverted the track and uh, realized I was trans sooner than I did? I was not usually conscious that that was the question I was investigating in my essays, but I absolutely was. And uh, I'm still thinking about it constantly. I was doing it even just now, going through old journal entries in anticipation of this interview. I was going through old journal entries, trying to find what I wrote about the teen people shoot, but instead just coming across things that made me go like, oh my God, like I, I was almost there. I almost had it, I almost had it. Uh, and what do you do with this knowledge? You can't really do anything except write an essay about it. On the day of Frankie's 17th birthday, March 4th, 2004, they received a gift from their friend Jaya Saxena, a collage handmade with clippings from the magazines they both read as teenagers. The gift was so meaningful, even prescient, that Frankie recorded this moment on their blog. made me a gorgeous collage with a magazine clipping that says, help, I'm a gay man trapped in a woman's body. And she gave me the most appropriate birthday card I have ever seen. In 1950s style art, an illustration of a pretty girl sitting between two handsome soldiers and saying happily, it's my birthday and I have two handsome men to take me out. One of the men is saying, let's go shopping. And the other one is saying, let's see a musical. And they both appear to be looking at each other more than at her. This might be a great moment to start talking about teen people because you appeared in teen people in an issue about um, prom survival. So you appeared in Teen People as a girl, and I'm curious, do you think about how you might have been in Teen People as a boy? Oh, it's hard to think about. I mean, there was no part of me, I don't think, at that age that desired to be in Teen People as a boy. I thought it was hilarious that I was asked to be in Teen People. I just, it was the funniest joke to me as a teenager that I had been, not only that I had been scouted on the street to model in Teen People, but that the look they put me in it was just so completely not me so anathema to me you know I was a theater kid so it was not weird to me to be in a costume and be playing a character how many people have the opportunity to be a beautiful glamorous model in a magazine I think that if I'd had the opportunity to be in teen people as a boy I probably would have wanted to wear the exact same thing like as drag you were scouted on the street by somebody yeah. from teen people tell me a bit about how that happened I am so delighted. This is basically where my big story begins. So I am happy to tell the whole story. So I went to high school in lower Manhattan in, um, I went to a friend's seminary, which is a school on East 16th street, right off, right East of third Avenue. And I am giving you the geographic details here because it is relevant to the story. The nearest public square to my high school was union square, which is a really, I don't know how well, you know, New York city. Uh, it's a really big public square with a lot of subway lines, a lot of traffic, a lot of foot traffic, a lot of protests happen there, and it's where the it's where the Hare Krishnas hang out, it's where they have a farmer's market, it's just like a really big, busy thoroughfare, and lots of other high schools are near there too, so there's a lot of teens. I say all this for context, because teens at my school were constantly getting scouted for Teen People magazine, it happened all the time. It happened to the girls at my school who were the most beautiful. It happened first, I think, to my classmate, Olivia Thurlby, who was so beautiful. She went on to become a movie actress. She was a gorgeous, gorgeous girl, always. And so it just made sense that she got scouted to appear in Teen People. She was photographed with her boyfriend. They did like a couple shoot. It was very cute. And then some other girls I knew got scouted too under the same circumstances. It was just like a revolving door of beautiful girls from my school getting scouted. So. 
naturally, you know, we all hoped that we would be the next one. It was a fantasy, but actually a fairly realistic fantasy based in reality that like maybe one day I'll be walking through Union Square and then teen people will come to me. So like I fantasized about it. And in my case, the fantasy came true. One day in my junior year of high school, I was crossing Union Square with my friend Ree, who was another theater kid. And we got stopped right on the street by this lady. You know, she seemed pretty nondescript, but Ree and I were tough New Yorkers. So our instinct was to like ignore her and walk really fast because she probably, we thought was panhandling or something weird. But she caught up with us, she chased us down. And she said, hey, my name is Carolyn. I am a modeling scout for teen people. And, and like Rhea and I did not even let her finish. We just started screaming. <laughs> we started screaming and jumping up and down like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Oh, you can't see me listeners, but I'm like flapping my hands. I'm, I'm doing this, I am reenacting how much we completely lost our shit. <laughs> Like, it's so funny. She had no ID, really. She had no credentials. She could have been a sex trafficker and we would have given over all our information, like we did. Uh, and luckily she was from Teen People, but man, like in retrospect, what a great way to kidnap girls to pretend to be from Teen People in Union Square. We had absolutely zero skepticism, no, no questions, just sign away our life rights, firstborn child. We were thrilled, we bragged to everybody. And then, then the awkward thing happened, which was a few weeks later, I received an email summoning me to the fashion warehouse for the Teen People shoot. And, you know, I instant messaged Ree like, oh my God, oh my God, we got summoned for the Teen People shoot. And Ree goes, oh, I, I didn't get the email. Ah, <laughs> uh, so this was a social disaster, as you can imagine compounded by the fact that uh, at this time, Rhea and I, I mentioned we were both theater kids, the spring musical that year was going to be Into the Woods, and Rhea had her heart set on the role of Little Red Riding Hood. Um, and right around this time were auditions for the spring musical, and right around the time of the teen people shoot, uh, we got our audition results back, and Rhea did not get the role of Little Red Riding Hood, I got the role of Little Red Riding Hood, which I had not even auditioned for. I wanted to play the witch. That was not a good role for me. So the director got it right there. Uh, anyway, as you can imagine, this really, really complicated my social situation. And between getting selected of the two of us for the prom makeup shoot and getting the role in the musical that Ree wanted, I realized like, I'm gonna have to do something about this or things are about to get very, very socially awkward for me. So what I did was I wrote back to the email from teen people. It was from Carolyn, the woman on the street who had scouted us. I wrote back and I don't remember how I phrased this or what I said, but I remember being like very bossy about it in a way that I have never been since then. But I channeled like this teenage Karen. I was just like, listen, Carolyn, this is unacceptable. You have to call Ree for the fashion shoot. Ree has to model for teen people. Like you scouted both of us. And I don't actually know if I leveled with Carolyn about what was at stake for me here. But I think even if I didn't explicitly say like, you have to throw Ree a bone here. Even if I didn't like say that it was because of social awkwardness, I think it was probably clear in the subtext. A few days or weeks after that, Ree did get called for something else. I don't think she ever appeared in Teen People, but Carolyn somehow set something up for Ree to be in. I think it was a local commercial, which I never saw, but like, whew, justice was done. Ree got to do her own modeling thing, and she got cast as Rapunzel in Into the Woods, which was uh, also a good role, and she did a lovely job. Frankie was once briefly married. On their wedding day, they wore a dress short enough to reveal noticeably unshaven legs. Frankie recalls only two instances where they have ever shaved their legs. One was the night before the teen people shoot. Not shaving, Frankie told me, is a bit I've committed to longer than I've committed to anything else. This was a thing that was important to me for reasons I couldn't quite understand at the time.
December 10th, 2003. Worried that they might want to photograph my legs, I attempted to shave for the first time in figurative years. Yeah, I am a liberated woman who also happens to be a lazy fuck. I hacked and slashed away for about half an hour, then got bored and decided to leave the rest for later. I now have the most interesting crop circles decorating my left leg, a sheath of untamed hair coating my right leg, a very tired razor, and a strange and probably unwarranted feeling of lopsidedness. The next day, Frankie made their way to the Teen People Studios. amazingly good right now and feel so amazingly slimy, both literally, so much lipstick, and figuratively, as I went to go model rather than work on the lit mag. I didn't know what avenue the studio would be on, so I took a cab, only to discover that it was exactly four blocks from where I live, and on the same avenue. When they opened the door to the building, I expected to have to climb stairs and walk down long hallways and so on. But no, the entire studio is one great big empty warehouse, like a Chelsea art gallery. It was filled with makeup and product and spotlights and cameras and very, very loud hip hop. Then the fashion guy, who had long curly hair and a habit of exclaiming groove when he was pleased, had me try on the dresses he wanted me to wear. And oh my God, it was all I could do to keep from cracking up. They were standard fare JCPenney type prom dresses that flowed inelegantly down past my feet, had the texture of plastic garbage bags, and were the color of no spring flower on this earth. One was salmon pink with sparkles on it. One was beige with gold sequins. One was bruisey lavender with a corsage. The one he ended up having me wear was the pale blue color of an honorable mention ribbon. Even he admitted under his breath how stupid these dresses were. He set it aside and sent me to have my makeup done. First, this tiny woman who didn't speak English painted my fingernails sparkly pink. Ew. And I don't know why, as they didn't photograph my nails. Then I waited around a bit, and then a young guy who spoke just a little English did my face. A lot. First, he smeared layers of cold white creamy stuff on it. Then he put foundation on it. Then he put more foundation on it. Then he put a whole bunch of stuff under my eyes. Then he plucked my eyebrows. Then more foundation. It went on and on and on and on and on like that for about an hour. It was insane. All while making forced conversation. Quote, I used to live in Chelsea. Chelsea was good, but my apartment was very cheap and it was crazy. One night there was a knock at my door and the whole second floor was blood. One of my neighbors was the gay, and he, here he made a stabbing motion, his boyfriend, Chelsea is crazy, unquote. Eyelash curlers are the most terrifying instrument of torture ever invented. Imagine having someone seize up your eyelashes in a pair of metal tongs and then squeeze them so that you can feel your eyelid being pulled over your eyeball. But I was quite impressed with this one makeup trick of smearing the side of my face with dark foundation and then streaking a lighter foundation above it. Voila, cheekbones. And then he put about a gallon of lipstick on me and it was this ultraviolet magenta raspberry eye blindingly gaudy color. Wait till you see it, your eyes will bleed. Two hours later, it was time for this cute blonde pixie-ish Australian woman named Stacy, cute Stacy's mom getting stuck in my head for hours to do my hair. She blow dried it to make it all smooth. That didn't take as long as makeup, except the makeup guy kept coming back to add little touches because with as much makeup as I was wearing, something got fucked up every time I blinked. Finally, it was time to get into my prom dress. I never thought I'd ever have to write that sentence in my life. I climbed distastefully into my tacky little number. Then they pinned me up until I couldn't breathe. Shit, said the fashion guy. I pricked myself. Oh, sorry, and bleeding all over the back of your dress. It's okay, it won't be in the picture. 
they sent me to get photographed. The photographer was a young girl with a string bean figure, huge eyes, pale complexion, two skinny blonde French braids, a pink tank top, and a septum ring. She chatted me up excitedly about her cats and about how much she loved her job and how self-esteem building it was to see how much work it took to make models pretty. She was my favorite, I think. She treated me the most like a person. I will never say anything so trite as everyone else viewed me as an object, except it's true. I don't mind, it's their job. It took another half hour just to start taking Polaroids because the hair and makeup and fashion people kept touching me up. When she finally started photographing, she kept instructing me to laugh. I can't laugh on cue, so I had to stretch my face into this really deranged manic snarl. Trust me, I saw the Polaroids. She knew I was uncomfortable, so she tried to loosen me up. Talk to me, tell me about your friends. Are you looking into colleges? At first, I couldn't think of anything to say. But we got so into the college discussion that she forgot to take pictures and put the camera down in order to tell me not to worry that college is fun, especially if it's art college, and it's just like high school with more freedom and cooler friends, and she wished she could go back. And so did the lighting guy. That was the only thing he said to me all day. And between every shot, the hair and makeup people would flock over to fix me again. She photographed me for a long time, yelling out instructions. Laugh, smile, show me all your teeth. Okay, now tilt your head to the side, lift your chin a little, and laugh. Great, look into the camera, lower your chin, give me a sort of sly smile. Tilt your head to the right, big smile, perfect. Now roll your eyes, be funny, like, oh mom, I don't wanna be in this picture. Great, now lift the corner of your mouth and snarl. You're a rebel, they forced you into this stupid prom dress. That was the last shot. It was as I was walking home that I realized how amazingly good I looked in my makeup. I sang out tonight from Rent as loud as I could in the middle of the street. The whole affair had taken four hours. Never again will I ever take seriously those fashion articles in teen magazines that show models and are all, you can look like this in three minutes if you buy this product and follow our five easy makeup steps. Ha. The bright side is I actually do look like that now but I'll never attempt to put on makeup on my own ever again. There's just no going back once you've been touched up by professionals for four hours. I think at the moment, my face has about 17 layers of product on it. I guess I better go wash, sigh. It's like turning back into a pumpkin. January 2004, Frankie got a copy of their issue of Teen People. Gathering their friends around, Frankie showed them the glossy portrait inside. Wrapped in a sateen shawl, Frankie wore a heart-shaped pendant on a thin length of cord to match the spaghetti straps on their pale blue dress. Their shiny brown hair was jaw length with a center part, and Frankie's smooch-proof lips were pressed into a coy smile. January 30th, 2004, I wrote on my blog. It's here. The March teen people is here, and my picture is on page 93. Everyone go purchase it, but try not to look directly at the cover. I'm rather embarrassed to be sharing magazine space with Jessica Simpson, although Ashton occupies a corner. I think the photo came out pretty darn good, despite the stupid dress. Ah, the miracle of airbrushing and four-hour makeup sessions. Various reactions to my magazine appearance. Laura. Oh my god, you look beautiful! 
This was in the middle of the street, so a huge crowd gathered around to look. Tracy, oh my god, you're fucking gorgeous! Willa, that's awesome! Ree, yay, it's great! Jaya, it's beautiful, but you're even prettier in real life. And then my very best friend, Shats, <laughs> you look stupid. forward now to my senior year of high school, I get an email out of nowhere from this lady, Carolyn, who I have not thought of since our correspondence a year ago. She reached out to my AOL address and emailed me and said, hey Frankie, remember me? I'm from Teen People. I scouted you on the street and I'm still working as a modeling scout for Teen People, but I just had knee surgery and I can't run after girls the way I used to do. It has really slowed me down. And I could really use a helper who is young and strong to chase after the girls for me and be like my right hand man as I go scouting. Would you like to be my helper? And again, like zero skepticism, zero anything. I was just like, yeah, sure, whatever. So we made a standing weekly date. I think it was Thursday afternoons. She would come pick me up at school and that was my very first job. Every Thursday, Carolyn and I would meet up. We would hang out in Union Square. And Carolyn just taught me all the behind the scenes of how teen people scouted their real girl models. Uh, it was interesting. It was not as easy as I thought it would be. It was not as easy for one thing to guess which girls teen people would be interested in photographing. Like there were some girls who I thought were so cute and Carolyn would look at them and be like, oh, that's not really the teen people look, not in a mean way, just like Carolyn knew what she, you know, she had a directive to follow. And other times I would see a young woman who I thought was gorgeous, just like stunning. And I would say, oh my God, Carolyn, we gotta go for her. And Carolyn would look at her, give her one look and say, oh, she's a professional. One time we flagged down a college girl and it turned out she couldn't work for us because she had already taped her appearance on the upcoming season of America's Next Top Model. This is a, this is a hazard of scouting in New York City is all the real teens are interspersed with real models. Uh, sometimes it was less dignified than that. There was one very difficult week when we had a directive from editorial. They were working on a jeans spread where they wanted to showcase jeans for every possible body type. But you know, this is 2005, so that's still pretty limited. And one of the instructions we had was they specifically wanted us to find a girl. This was the quote. They wanted us to find a girl with a butt like J-Lo. We were standing outside a high school. It was the Martin Luther uh, King Jr. High School uh, and LaGuardia. They're right next to each other. And we were just like standing there, like very discreetly, like checking out the butt of every girl who walked past. And I would like whisper to Carolyn, what about her butt? Would you say that's a JLo butt? And we'd have to be like, uh, I don't know if that's, uh, no, try it, go for it. it. It was incredibly awkward and degrading for everybody involved, but uh, they did end up doing that shoot. Oh, you know who was in that shoot, actually, was Nanja Spiegelman, who ended up being my editor at the Paris Review. She was one of the jeans models in that shoot. She writes about this in her memoir, which is called I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, and which I recommend. But it was so much fun, and it was especially fun because on the occasions when we did succeed in flagging down a real teen who was eligible to model for us, oh my god, we just made her day. It was it's so amazing to get to make someone that happy, like to have the power to put that kind of smile on a girl's face. I remember there was one girl who we scouted in Union Square who just didn't believe us. She was hanging out with her guy friends and they were giving her so much shit and saying, oh, I remember her name was Jackie. They were saying like, oh, Jackie, this woman, this girl, they're clearly scammers. Like, don't sign up with them. Who would ever want you to be a model? You could never be a model. Like, come on, who do you think you're kidding? But we, uh, we convinced her and she did appear in Teen People. And then we ran into her again a few weeks later and she just ran up to us and gave us the biggest hug and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. That was the best day of my life. And I felt so beautiful. And she started telling us about how she wrote poetry in her spare time. It just seemed like she had blossomed, maybe not as a result of Teen People, but it was just nice to get to see this girl in two different points in her high school life. And to know that 
you know, that we had played a role in giving her, if nothing else, a really nice day. And I'm still happy about that. Oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> she would be a fantastic guest on this show. If you happen to be flipping through, I think, a 2004 or 2005 issue and you see a girl named Jackie, like, see if you can track down Jackie. I would love to know what became of her. I hope she's still writing. Uh, yeah, I'd love to ask her, like, what, sh what shifted between those two interactions? Yeah, it's, it's like maybe nothing. Maybe it was just a coincidence that the first time was a bad day and the second time was a good day. But, mm. you know, you come into people's lives for two seconds and then you think about them forever. And I just, I wanted to know so many of these girls. your childhood and your sense of self and identity what advice would you give to your teenage self it's so difficult i feel like there's three possible answers to this question one possible answer is i wouldn't tell my teen self anything because they were terrific i would just tell them to keep doing what you're doing keep up the good work you're killing it there is actually a grain of truth to that answer i have so much tenderness and affection for my teenage self, and I would not want to give them any advice that would get them to stop writing, for example. Um, another possible answer is I would tell my teen self to be nicer and like be more mindful about what you write about your classmates on your blog. But this answer doesn't feel very legit because people told me that all the time when I was a teenager. I was constantly getting that advice as a teenager. I did not listen to it. So I don't know why I would listen to my 34 year old self from the future if I was not listening to every single other person in my life. So uh, I might not waste my one advice on something that I know they're not going to listen to. The one that I keep coming back to, not just in the context of this, but every day of my life is, what if I had gone back in time and suggested to my teenage self that they could transition? Would my teen self have listened? Would it have meant anything to them? And that is the black box of my life. That's the thing I can just never know. I, I don't know if, I don't know how easy it would have been to change my timeline, to change the trajectory of my life. Uh, and it haunts me, you know? I wonder what would have happened if I could talk to 16-year-old, 17-year-old Frankie and be like, hey, Frankie, you know, uh, you, you could actually just be the thing that you're pretending to be. It's possible. I can, I can hook you up with medical professionals who can make this happen. I literally have no idea how teenage Frankie would have received that. It's possible they wouldn't have listened. It's possible that they would have been like, no, I'm, I want to see how this beautiful teen model thing plays out. I want to see how this theater kid thing plays out. Uh, but maybe not, you know, maybe there's another life that is very close to the, very close to the surface of this one that, that I could have had. And uh, I don't know if there is like a correct combination of words that I could give myself in the form of advice. And that's just a mystery that I'm going to have to live with. This is a known unknown, you might say. <laughs> that's the theme of this episode, I think. Yeah. Um, sounds like the Quaker school was um, an interesting environment for you and, and perhaps a formative environment. Is there something from the Quaker school that you've come away with today? Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I have such fondness, such nostalgia for it. It's a complicated legacy to have. I had such a good time in high school that I had a nervous breakdown in college because it could never live up to uh, my standard of 
self-expression that I had in high school. One thing that I both am very grateful for and know is more complicated than I'm making it sound is it was, it was very normalized and encouraged to be friends with your teachers and to hang out with your teachers. My teachers read my blog and this was just like an open thing and they, they knew all about my personal life. And I love that and it was so much fun. Luckily, nothing too dreadful ever happened in my life uh, between me and a teacher, but I know now that I have worked as a teacher that like, it's just not a good idea to try to be friends with your students. It's not good for them and it's not good for you because they're never going to think you're cool. They're really not. And like if your goal is for your students to think you're cool, you are setting yourself up to make an ass of yourself. But I will say that I just felt so relaxed in the environment of my high school. I felt like I could show up and be myself. And that sounds corny, but I don't mean it in a corny way. It was kind of mystical. And I was myself in a way that was really only possible in a very small, very eccentric, very permissive environment. I posed nude for my high school yearbook photo. This is a fun fact about me. My best friend took a nude photo of me with my, you know, just like strategically covered up. So it wasn't like straight up pornographic material, but I was very clearly naked. And I submitted this for my yearbook page and the principal like half-heartedly tried to speak to me about it. And I just shouted her down because that was the kind of teenager I was. I was like, this is my freedom of expression. And like, you are silencing me, you're censoring me. And she was like, okay, fine. Have a nude yearbook photo, see if I can. And uh, was this the right decision on anyone's part? I don't know, but I am very happy that that was the weirdo high school experience I got to have. And uh, I was not able to sustain that personality into my 20s, but that just makes it all the more special to me that I had four magical years of just <laughs> existing in my absolute natural unfiltered state. And I, it's not an exaggeration to say that I've spent my entire life since then trying to recapture that aspect of myself. And it took me until my 30s to realize that transitioning was actually the simplest path to that. Uh, so I, I'd like to think I'm getting it back, but uh, I, will, I will try to be nicer this time around because I am not without regret about how I behaved in this incredibly permissive, relaxed environment that let me be my most unfiltered id self. In 2005, Frankie experienced an incident of cyberbullying. Someone left an anonymous comment on someone's blog, describing Frankie as a squeaky, snotty, under-talented, over-praised, jittery, frantic, catty, self-absorbed, androgynous, lispy know-it-all. Far from upsetting Frankie, this left them feeling euphoric and seen. They responded in their own blog post, examining the notion of androgyny. I wish I knew who wrote that, because it made my week. I'd like to think that my enemies are all too dumb to string so many words together, but this characterization of me is a real work of art and clearly written by someone who's relatively close to me because it's just so eerily accurate. Every word of it describes me to a T. Well, with the possible exception of under-talented, I take issue with that one, but then that's just the snotty and self-absorbed side of me talking. Girls are so weird about androgyny. These days, at least in my circle, androgyny is in. Ree likes to say things like, I like video games because I'm a boy. And I like both Star Wars and the OC. Does that make me genderless? But here's the catch. To pull off androgyny as a girl, you have to be completely comfortable with your femininity. Re is, no question, but I never have been. 
That's why my androgyny isn't considered sexy. If you act like a boy without making it very obvious that you are all pink and sugar and spice and estrogen underneath it all, people, especially your fellow girls, get very uncomfortable. Lately, I've been on a Katherine Hepburn kick. I watched Adam's Rib on TCM, and then I went out and rented Woman of the Year. The night before, I had watched To Catch a Thief with Grace Kelly. The night before that, Rebecca with Joan Fontaine. Joan Fontaine and Grace Kelly are so, so pretty, all delicate and blonde and sweet, like golden butterflies in little skirts with their soft voices and gentle smiles. Katherine Hepburn is rough and hard with her sharp edges and snooty accent. She really isn't pretty at all, and she acts like such a snotty know-it-all in every single movie. But out of those three actresses, I know which one I'd most like to be. stand by my grand unified theory of gender that I laid out in that blog entry from 2005. It is interesting to revisit now. Like, I can see myself circling around an idea, but not quite getting there. I can also see myself doing a lot of projecting onto other girls, what is probably something that's just going on in my head. And I can see myself in that entry sort of thrilling to the idea that, like, all girls, all girls hate me, all girls recognize that I am not one of them, and that's on them, and, like, they, they all, they all have access to this truth about me, and it's not my fault, and it's nothing to do with me. Yeah, and it's not just you examining that, too, because if Jaya made that collage for you, then Jaya was, you know, thinking, thinking about your identity in a divergent way at that point, like Catherine Hepburn, it was a kind of outness that like was not widely understood as outness. And you know, Jaya was my very close friend, but clearly even someone who disliked me was able to characterize me as like this lisping androgynous catty person with gay voice. Like it was such an odd thing to say about someone who was presumably a girl at school. And I, I think about it all the time. It was such a, uh, such a beautiful insult, you know, it meant a lot to me. It's funny, actually, I guess this sort of brings me back to the topic of why it wasn't weird or dysphoric for me to appear in Teen People in the guise that I did, because I was so, I had not been chosen because I was like Miss Teen Prom Queen. That, it, was, it was so clear to everyone involved that this was a costume I was putting on, and this, what is smooch-proof lips, I think, was the makeup tutorial that went with my picture. Uh, it, like... It had nothing to do with me, and there was zero pretense that it had anything to do with me. And that's probably the most healthy approach to modeling in general, or being a public figure in general, is to just completely separate yourself from the version of you that people are seeing. feels relevant here. In photography, there's this concept of the latent image, the image made on an exposed piece of film that's not visible until the film is developed. When Frankie posed for Teen People, they and the Teen People staff might not have appreciated the parallels between their latent identity and this process. The final stage of film processing is called fixing, where the negative is stabilized through a cocktail of chemicals. Before Frankie and I wrapped up, I asked them why they kept their copy of Teen People magazine. Because I 
look fucking amazing in that picture. I mean, come on. I knew I was never going, well, I didn't know for sure, but I knew it was unlikely that I would ever get to be a model again. Although I think I hung on to that dream. But uh, yeah, I would never in a million years have dreamed of getting rid of this beautiful fashion photo of me as a model. If nothing else, it was such a funny story even then. And I knew it would only get funnier as time went on. And I was pleased with how it came out looking. I think, I think it's, an interesting paradox that even though they have me dressed and styled in a way that made me unrecognizable to myself on a day-to-day -day basis, because I basically was a full-time cross-dresser and huge tomboy from always, but even in spite of all that, I do think they captured a little bit of me. I recognize myself in that picture. Hmm. I feel like theater kids make the best teen people models. Oh my god, it's like you saw deep into my soul. That is my true gender above all other genders. <laughs> my gender is theater kid. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Thanks to Frankie Thomas for sharing these memories. And thank you for listening. Since our interview, Frankie has found a literary agent. I've posted a link to their stories and essays in the notes for this episode. And you can find a list of their favorite books, including the books they describe as their North Star, in those notes as well. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at TeenPeoplePod and on Tumblr, TeenPeoplePod.tumblr.com. Next episode, I talk with Frankie's good friend, Jaya Saxena, who was mentioned throughout this episode and who also appeared in Teen People magazine. Amazingly, I tracked down Jaya and Frankie separately, not knowing either of them knew each other until after I'd made contact. Even better, that's not the first time this has happened. Small world, eh? Jaya is now a published author of nonfiction and is a senior writer at eater.com. She spoke with me about her work, her favorite record store, and why her happy place is the Gem and Mineral Room at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave a review or rating on your favorite podcast app. This helps push me up the charts so I can share these stories widely. Until next time, I'm Anna Soper. <laughs>